congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you flip back a page in your book of praise to Lord's Day 20, you see the title of the third section of the explanation of the Apostles' Creed, God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. And so the third section, the last five articles of the Creed, have to deal with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what does he do? Well, look there in, in question answer 53. He is also given to me, we confess from the Scripture, he is also given to me to make me share in Christ and all his benefits. And that's always what you will see when it comes to the work, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. He always points to Christ. He always brings us to Christ. He always brings glory to Christ. And if you see something, a phenomenon, which people say is the work of the Spirit, and Christ is not in the center, then that is not the Spirit of God. It might be some other Spirit, but it's not the Spirit of God. And so the Holy Spirit of God applies to us the benefits that we have in Christ. Now, what are those benefits? Well, it is the Spirit, if you look through the articles of the Creed, uh, the last five articles, the Spirit is the one who unites us by faith to Christ and to His church. He makes us members of the Holy Catholic Christian Church. It is the power of the Spirit which unites us in communion with the saints. It is the Holy Spirit who impresses upon us the reality of the forgiveness of sins because the Spirit works through the Word preached and the Word made visible in the sacraments. And it is also the Holy Spirit who is powerfully at work in those glorious truths and promises of the gospel that we confess in those last two articles which are in the Lord's Day for this afternoon, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We confess in this Lord's Day that by the power and promise of the Holy Spirit, we are headed towards our eternal home, the new heavens and the new earth. And this is important. It's very easy to fall into a truncated Christianity, a Christianity which begins and then stops halfway, a Christianity which talks about Jesus and which talks about forgiveness, but manages to wrangle those things into a frame of reference below the horizon for this world alone. And so it becomes kind of a social thing where you're a good person and you try not to do bad things. And a lot of what passes for Christianity in our age and through the centuries falls into that trap. But in the last articles of the Creed, the church does what Jesus tells it to do. The church lifts up its eyes, sets its mind on the things that are above. It looks forward and it looks up. You see, God didn't just free his people from Egypt 
to let them wander around forever in the desert. And so God doesn't just free us from the Egypt of sin to let us wander around in this fallen, broken world. There's something more. He's leading us through the world, through the desert of this fallen world, to bring us to our destination, to the promised land, to the new Jerusalem, to be at home with God where we belong. And that is an important thing to keep before us as Christians. Now, the Scripture tells us, Paul writes to the Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the vision, that's the perspective, that's the goal of the Christian life, the day of the Lord, when our faith is made sight, when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, when we're home again with the Father, when everything has been made new. That's the goal of the Christian life. And this is a great comfort when we face death to know where things are going. I believe the resurrection of the body. That changes our world radically. It changes the way we think, the way we live. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the Christian confession of God's truth in Christ. This is the confession made at baptism. You know, the creed, as I've said a number of times already in past sermons, the creed developed as a baptismal confession. When people came to the Christian faith from the darkness of the world and atheism and the false gods and the idolatry, and they stood up before God and his people, and they said, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Spirit. And upon the profession of this faith that we confess every Sunday, they were baptized, reciting the creed. And in the strength and the power of this Christian confession, Christians have faced down emperors and lions and death itself, knowing the promise of the gospel. Who can separate us from the love of God? No one. Nothing. Not even death can separate us from the love of God towards us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why Christians, in the end, are not afraid of death. We don't like pain because we're normal people. We don't enjoy the idea of parting. It hurts. It's unpleasant. But when it really gets to the, to the, the point, we are not afraid of death. To be a Christian means not only to live as a Christian, but it also means that we die as Christians. We die not as the ungodly, 
railing and raging against against the dying of the light and not going softly into that dark night and, and, and shaking our fist at the universe and full of all kinds of fear and anger, we die as Christians in the comfort of faith. We fall asleep in the embrace of the Lord Jesus. Now, if you have your Psalm book open, you, you look at the first question and answer in our Lord's Day. What comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? And you see there's a construction here, two things, not only, but also. You see those two little paragraphs there in the answer? There's one thing which is not only, but then there's a second, a second thing, but also. And, and so what the Catechism confesses here from the Scripture is that there are two comforts. The first is immediate The second is future. So what is the immediate comfort? Well, not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head. And when the church confesses this from the Scripture, we confess this against the false teaching of the Roman church, who teaches the idea of purgatory. And purgatory is where you go after you die, unless you're one of the very few elite saints that have more good works than bad works. And so purgatory is where most uh, people end up, according to the teaching of Rome. And purgatory says to you, you're not good enough. You need some more purification. You need some more sin burned out of your life. And when you're finally ready, then God will receive you in his presence. Now, as Reformed Christians, we say, well, yes, that's true. I am not good enough. That's quite true. But Christ is. Christ is good enough. He's more than good enough. He's perfectly good. And in him, and through him, and because of him, I am welcome home into the presence of the Father in the eternal mansions of God's family in heaven. If you flip back a few pages at question answer 42, and you see that we we confess that our death puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. And that's what we confess. That's what the Scripture teaches. My soul upon death shall immediately be taken up to Christ. Now look at question answer 57. Three times in this short answer, we see Christ, Christ, Christ. That's the important thing. My soul will be taken up to him to be with him. That's what Jesus said to the thief on the cross, right? He didn't say, today, you're going to be up in heaven. He said, today, you will be with me in paradise. Because that's heaven, to be with Jesus, to be with Christ, to be in the presence of God. Now, now the Lord Jesus Christ, as, the, as a true man, as the last Adam, when he died, he also went immediately into the presence of God. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The Scripture teaches clearly that upon death, the separation of the spirit and the body, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was laid into the ground, but upon death, 
he immediately went up into the presence of the Father, the presence of God. And Paul, when he's struggling with the threat of impending death there in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, he says this, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He wanted to stay here on the earth to keep doing his work, to serve the church and the gospel. But he says, you know, when it really comes down to it, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That is how he describes death. Now, this comfort, this is the comfort we confess in the hour of death. Christians do not die with a faint and a vague hope for the future that maybe somehow I will end up in some better place. No. Christians die with a very real and a present comfort that immediately, that right away, I will close my eyes to the things of this earth. I will open them and see the beatific vision, the glory of God. I will be with all the saints. I will be with the innumerable hosts of angels in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, because we know that, because God has promised that, because God has guaranteed that in Christ, we can say together with the apostle, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Brother and sister, we need to hold on to this. We need to cultivate this certainty of faith. Because as the darkness deepens, and as the clouds gather, it is possible that in your lifetime, my lifetime, we might have to make the choice between living and denying our Lord or dying because we confess him. And if we don't have this strongly built into our hearts, into our faith, if we do not have a certainty that to live is Christ and to die is gain, if we live for this world, if we're fearful of death, if we're ready to give up everything just to stay alive, then in that day when our faith is tested, unless God intervenes, we will falter. And so this is not just abstract theology here, but this is life-changing truth. And so that's the immediate promise and comfort of the gospel of the resurrection of the body. There's also a future comfort here, and that's in the second part of question answer 57. But also this my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. That's going to happen in the future. Now, back in Lord's Day 18, we confess Scripture's teaching that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, Jesus Christ, will also take us, his members, up to himself. There is in heaven a true man, Jesus Christ, with a glorified body, a body which does not suffer the consequences, the ravages, the devastation of sin. When he was on this earth, he had a body which suffered the consequences. He did not sin, but he suffered the consequences of our sin. He, he got sick and he got tired. But in heaven, there is a man who has 
a perfect and glorious new body, the type of body that God will give to us. We have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. And that, that's not just a spiritual thing, but it is something that applies to body and soul. We confess, I believe that I belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. He redeems me, body and soul. And so that glorified body of the Lord Jesus, which can't be sick and can't suffer pain and can't die and is free from the brokenness which are the consequences of sin, that is what he has in store for us. If you have your Bible handy, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. And here the apostle says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a massive difference between what we put into the ground and what will we stand up on the last day. Now, Paul, as he writes these things in 1 Corinthians 15, he reminds us that this isn't just an optional truth that we can take or leave. This is one of the cardinal truths of the Christian faith. He says, if the dead are not raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is important. We must hold on to scriptural truth always, and we must hold on to this scriptural truth as well. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That is the story of the universe. That is the story of the human race. That is what the scripture teaches us, that we were created to live, that we sinned and died and death came through Adam's fall and that new life and resurrection comes through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you deny any one of those truths, you lose the entire Christian faith and you cannot call yourself a Christian. So these are not abstract things that are tucked away in a theology textbook. They change our life. The Holy Spirit does not do things by half measures. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I'm going to read verse 50 right through to 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, 
Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see what the Holy Spirit puts before us. The promise of glory, unimaginable glory, powerful, transformative glory. He doesn't free us from the Egypt of our sin to leave us wandering around in the desert of this fallen, broken, groaning creation so that we can live a socially acceptable, Christianized kind of life and then die and then stop existing. That's not the gospel. He brings us through, through the desert, through the pain, through the affliction, through the brokenness. And he brings us into the promised land. He brings us through this world and into the next. And we see that guaranteed in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember Peter is preaching on Pentecost Sunday. And he pointed to the empty tomb. And he said, death could not hold him. Death could not hold him because death had no right over Jesus. The wages of sin is death. And so death gets to hold on to sinners. But Jesus is not a sinner. Jesus has no sin. And all the sins of ours that were piled on him, he erased and wiped away by his sacrifice on the cross. And so death tried to grasp him and hold him. And Jesus just got up on resurrection morning the way you get up from bed in the morning yourself. Death could not hold him because Jesus is life itself. And death has no power over he who is the life itself. Death has no power over the righteous. Death can only hold onto the wicked. Death can only hold onto the unrepentant sinner. And that's why, brother and sister, it's so important that we are found to be in Christ. We cannot conquer death in our own power. We need to be found righteous in Him. Because when we have His perfect righteousness, there is no other. When we have His perfect righteousness, then death no longer has power over us. The grave that could not hold on to Him cannot hold on to us forever. How could it be? How could the Lord of life ever leave one of the members of his body in the grave in death forever? That is impossible. And so, though we die, yet shall we live. The, body teaches, the Bible teaches we shall rise again with a body free from the ravages of sin. And we shall live as the psalmist sang about so longingly, we shall live in the presence of the Lord forever. Now, when we have that perspective, that Bible, that gospel perspective, that changes the way we look at life, that changes our priorities, that changes our goals and our plans. And you see how the Holy Spirit ended the chapter 15 of of Corinthians that we read, so your labor in the Lord is not 
in vain. Your labor is not in vain. Why not? Because it is done in the perspective of eternity. It has eternal value. And so that changes how we live. We don't pour ourselves into things that will only last until judgment day. We don't invest ourselves totally into the things that one day are just going to burn up anyway. We work with those things because we must. But we don't put them on the highest place of value. What do we value as Christians? We value the things that last forever. And what lasts forever? People. People last forever. Every single person in this room, every single person that you see as you go about your daily life, are eternal beings. They will live either in eternal joy and delight in the presence of God, or they will suffer forever in the eternal judgment and righteous wrath of God against sin. And there is nothing more important than that. And that's why we focus on people, not on things. We love our husband. We love our wife. We love our children. We love the saints. We love our neighbors. We love all men. Because these are not temporary things. These are eternal investments which will generate eternal returns. Now again, this is not dry, dusty theology. In some textbook or in some book, some dusty tome in some dusty library which we look at every century or so. These are living truths which should change our lives. If we really are Christians, if we really believe what we say and sing every Sunday, if we really believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, we will live differently. We will thank God for our careers and jobs, but we will give them less priority than the nurture and instruction of our children in the fear of the Lord. Because they are the project in our life. Our children and grandchildren, our loved ones, are the project in our life which has an infinite return on the investment. An infinite return. You see our prime minister traveling the country and selling $10 a day daycare and encouraging parents to farm out their children to others who are not related, who do not know them, and who cannot love them as much as family can. Why? Because for the prime minister, the greatest good is that both parents can develop their careers. And as Christians, we shake our heads at that because it's got all of, everything's upside down. And we certainly shouldn't be caught up in that worldly approach. So that's the one thing that I want to draw your attention to. And there's another thing as well. Because we believe in the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, that is why Christians make a point, if we can, if it's possible, of planting the bodies of our loved ones in the ground when they die. We sow them into the ground like a gardener sows seeds in the certain expectation 
that from this grave will spring new life. And that's why throughout the centuries, Christians have really tried as much as they can when it's possible to bury in the ground their dead loved ones. And so we come to question answer 58, the second question answer. That life, that eternal life that we confess that God promises, we, it's an article of faith a life of eternal joy and perfect blessedness. We do not see it here. In fact, to be a Christian means to suffer persecution. We know that. No one who desires to live a godly life in, God, in Christ will be able to avoid persecution, says the Apostle Paul to Timothy. There is suffering for Christ. There are the pains and the afflictions of this broken life. But when we compare everything, with the eternity of glory that awaits us. Well, then Paul said it. We read it. Paul says, yeah, these are light and momentary afflictions. And, and you say, well, Paul, how can you say that? Seriously? I'm dying of cancer, Paul. I'm living in chronic pain, Paul. I've lost one loved one, two loved ones. My marriage is hurting and, and in pain. I'm suffering here. I'm suffering there. My body is breaking down. How can you say that? That these are light and momentary afflictions. And they are not if you just look at them. But if you pull back and look in the sweep of all eternity, then all the pain, all the suffering, all the hardship, all the hurt, all the brokenness of this life is less than a fraction of a millisecond. That's what Paul is trying to drive home to us in the reading that we had there from Corinthians. Because it, 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 it's, it's, it's painful, yes, but if this is painful, it's nothing compared to the weight of glory that this is preparing for us. What awaits us is an eternity of perfect blessedness. Do you, do you spend time meditating on that? the return of our Lord Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead and to usher in the consummation of all things, the renewal of the world when heaven and earth will come together. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things New. This is the hope, the certain hope of the future that we have as Christians. But it's not just for the future. Do you see what we confess here in question answer 58? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. Think about that. We, we read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. We read how the apostle describes the pains of this world as, as kind of like birth pangs. These are pains which hurt. And the sisters who have had babies can tell us this. 
that birth pangs are very painful. And yet, they're saying something. They're saying that beyond the pain comes joy. The joy of cuddling that sweet little newborn in your arms. And, and when that moment comes, then the pain of the birth is forgotten. And that's what we're in, brothers and sisters. We are going through the birth pangs of a new world. And those birth pangs hurt. But they're telling us something. They're telling us that something better is coming. And therefore, says the apostle, we do not lose heart. But the more it hurts and the harder it gets, the more we know that glory is almost here. We long to put on our heavenly dwelling. We get older, and our bodies and minds don't work the way they used to. And there's more and more pain and brokenness. And the more that happens, the more we say, Jesus, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And I was thinking about a caterpillar. And children, you know what happens. I think I've got this right. That the caterpillar, some of them anyway, they become butterflies, right? But for the caterpillar to become a butterfly, first they have to be wrapped up in a cocoon. And then inside the cocoon, all kinds of strange things happen, and that caterpillar body, that caterpillar body is all broken up and, and, and changed into what will come out, which is that beautiful butterfly. And, and in a way, all the pains and afflictions and hardships of this world, they, they wrap around us, and they, they suffocate us, and they, they crush us, and we feel... This is so horrifying. This is not a nice experience. And, and we say, Lord, can you just let us travel along the leaves as free and happy caterpillars? Just leave us alone. Well, what if God would do that? What if God would leave us alone? Then we would be caterpillars forever, wouldn't we? He's doing something. He's working on us. He's changing us. He has bigger and better and more glorious and more beautiful things in store for us. And so we break down, yes, we break down. And we grow old, yes, we grow old. And our bodies go back into the earth and they, they break down in the earth. And all that hurts. But out of that brokenness, God brings glory. The glory of a glorified body built for an eternity of joy and glory. Behold, I make all things new. We feel it already. We experience it already. We see it. We taste it already. The joy of new birth. A little precious baby created to glorify God forever. Life overcomes death. The joy of baptism as the waters flood over the little sinner and promise the washing away of sin in the blood of Christ. The joy of a new heart created in us by God the Holy Spirit. The joy of new attitudes and new priorities and a new understanding of the word and new desires as the Holy Spirit of God transforms us from glory to glory after the image of Jesus Christ. That's happening right now. That's the beginning of eternal joy. 
the joy of faith conquering fear. So many tastes of heaven that God gives us. And so we have come to the end of the creed. And in the creed, we're confessing who we believe. I believe in God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. I believe, I believe, I believe. This is the comfort of the gospel that we receive by faith. And this is only for those who believe. This is only for those who abandon their own righteousness and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. This is the Christian faith. This is the faith of the Christian, that I know God and that he knows me. This is the faith sealed in our baptism, that God declares, I am God the Father, your creator. You are safe in my providential care. I am God the Son, your Savior. I died for you. I washed you from your sins. I am God the Spirit. I apply to you the benefits you have in Christ. I give you a new heart. I fill you with the power of the world to come. I give you life now and forever in Christ. And by faith, by faith in this one true living God, we walk through the smoldering ruins of this sin-devastated world. We, we pilgrimage through it on the way to glory. Does life hurt sometimes? Oh yes, it does. Sometimes it hurts very much. Does death hurt? Oh yes, it does. How it hurts. But this hope must soften all our sorrow. We are going home. And every day, we are one day closer. We are going home. Come, fellow pilgrims, heads then high. For those who bide salvation's morrow, the hills are level, seas are dry. Oh, blessedness above all measure. Oh, joy when once all grief is banned. There is our heart. There is our treasure when we are in the promised land, when we are home again. Amen.